there's a theme that we have hit on for the last couple of weeks, and it's this theme of action and reaction. Newton's third law, every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Action, consequence, okay? That's kind of this theme that we've been hitting on. It's going to show up in our text again today, but just as a reminder, it's God's action of regeneration in a person's heart that causes the reaction of continued righteousness as a Christian. Like that's how we are able to continue pursuing holiness as God's people because of the, the action that God has put in our hearts, has done within us. So why do we pursue purity? Why do we strive to live a life of holiness? Well, because John's already said, because Jesus is holy, because he is righteous. And this is a big one. And because he's coming again, Jesus is coming back. How we live is important. Now, back in September on the 27th, I preached a message with the title, The Love God Hates. Sort of weird to think about it that way, but the love that God hates is the love of the world, John says. More specifically, the ways of thinking, the patterns of thinking of this world. And he was really clear. He said, you can't love the world and also love God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot on the path pursuing righteousness. That doesn't work that way. And then Jason pointed out last week that we can actually know and identify who our spiritual father is based on what we practice. So if you practice sinning, if you make a practice of sinning, that's how John says it, your father is the devil. You're of the devil, he says. But if you make a practice of pursuing righteousness, if you practice righteousness, he says, then it shows that you have actually been born of God. Your father is God. So we have to ask these questions. When we come across texts like this, we have to ask questions like this. What's the theme of my life? Friends, what's the theme of your life? What do you spend your time practicing? Do you practice and work hard at righteousness or evil or sin, what you know to be going against God? Now, again, Jason was right last week. He said, this is pretty simple, and I appreciate that too. John isn't really complicating things here. It's cut and dry. Now, it's, it's maybe not easy to swallow, but it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty simple. More importantly, it's right and good and simple because God said it. And so we know it's true. If we're, if we love the things of this world, if we love the things that are anti-God, they're also anti-Christ. And John helped us understand in chapter three so far that people who make a habit out of loving the world and the patterns of thinking of the world and its desires, these people are opposed to the Messiah. So in our text today, John is going to come back around, kind of like the, the chorus of a song. He's going to come back around to this theme, this topic of love. And he's going to compare the love that God hates, which was the thinking and the patterns of this world. He's going to compare that to the love that God loves. And he set this all up back in verse 10. So go ahead and look back in verse 10 with me. Before we read our full text, we're just going to read this together. Verse 10, chapter 3, 1 John. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So as, if you really look and internalize this passage, this is hard to swallow. This is kind of abrupt. But believe it or not, I think that through John, the Apostle John, God is being awfully kind to us here. He's being really patient with us. In fact, he's not playing games with us. He's not making us jump through a bunch of hoops in order to be assured of our salvation. He just lays out this simple test. Here it is. You want to know you've been born of God? You want to know that you belong to God? Do you practice righteousness? And do you love your brother? That's not complicated, is it? It's not. But if you say no to either of those things, if you say, I don't practice righteousness, I don't love that person, John then says, you cannot be of God. Now, remember, when we talk about practicing righteousness, we're not talking about sinless perfection. That's not, that's not what we're discussing here. In fact, uh, Jason talked about this last week in verse 9, that kind of debunked sinless perfection. What we're talking about here is the person who has tenacious effort, who tries and who cares, but inevitably, because of our fallenness and, our, and the sin in, in our hearts, we still stumble and fall. We still mess up. We falter in our obedience. But we're not talking about the person here who sins and has no consideration for the things of God and has no care about the effect that it has on him or other people. So let's read, let's get into our text, 1 John 3. We're going to read 11 through 18 this morning. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, please bless your word. We, we talk about love all the time. It's the focus of so many things in our culture. And yet, Lord, I don't know that we really understand it very well. Not just the love that you have for us, but also how we're supposed to love one another. If it's such a defining mark on us, Lord, we need to know how to do this better. Teach us today by your word, Lord, and your word alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So John here, in what we've just read, he, he says that it's, it's love that reveals what a person really believes. Now stick with me in this for a second because your beliefs directly affect what? Your actions. Okay? We could even say it this way. Your theology 
affects your methodology. What you believe affects how you live. So, no matter what a person says, or how loud they say it, how a person loves really reveals what they truly believe. You see what I'm saying? How a person loves someone else reveals what they really, really believe. Look at verse 11. We should love one another, it says. That's the message that we've heard from the beginning. So John is saying, the moment that Christ burst onto the scene here, this has been the message. It's been love. Love has been what we've heard from the beginning. Love one another. And if you think back, in, specifically in the book of John, Jesus prays this, this long, intense prayer for Christians to love one another to be united together. In fact, he said, that's how they're going to know who my people are, is by your love for one another. So this is from the beginning. And now John compares and contrasts, just to drive home his point here, Cain and Abel. Now you've undoubtedly heard this story. This is one that we teach our kids pretty early on, usually. But we know that Cain was of the evil one, it says, and he hated and murdered his brother. So literally, in the flesh, not just in his heart with his thoughts, but in the flesh committed murder against his brother. Genesis 4 tells us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. Why did Cain kill his brother? From, from scriptural account, those are the only two children alive at this point from Adam and Eve. Why did he kill his brother? Well, John just tells us in verse 13, he says, because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers, Abel's, were righteous. But let's read the account from Genesis 4 together. Flip over all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. This is going to help us understand what John is saying, I think, a lot deeper. Genesis chapter 4, let's just read the first eight verses or so. Give you a moment to find that. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I want to notice a couple of things from, from this. There's a few things I want to point out. Some interesting, some helpful for where we're at in 1 John. Look at, look at Cain and Abel's sacrifice for a minute. This is, this is pretty important here. God didn't regard Abel's sacrifice just because it was a, a flesh offering a, of, of a lamb or a, a goat, firstborn, and Abel's or Cain's was of the ground. That wasn't the reason why God 
didn't accept Cain's, and he did accept Abel's. It wasn't the type of offering that was given here, because if you if you know in Levitical Old Testament sacrificial systems, both a grain offering, um, fruit offering, vegetable offering, as well as meat offering, those were all acceptable in the Levitical system. It wasn't the type of offering. There was something else about it. There was something else that was the problem with Cain and his offering. Look at verse 4 of Genesis chapter 4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. I think that is part of the key to unlocking this. Abel brought the firstborn. This is what the people of God were to do, to bring the first and the best, right? To bring the first. You're not supposed to bring a limping, half-dead animal or a half-rotten piece of fruit to offer to God. You were to bring the first and the best. Evidently, Cain didn't do that. He didn't bring the first and the best. Whether it was from the ground or from an animal, it didn't matter. He just didn't bring his best. And it was not regarded by the Lord, it says. Here's the thing. Cain was trying to do what so many people today still try to do. They try to be right with God their own way. They don't care about what's said, about the instructions given what they should do, they try to be right with God their own way. But it didn't work for Cain. It's not going to work for us today. And our response is generally what Cain's response is to anger. Well, if, if this isn't good enough for God, I don't know what else I could do. We just get angry. But here's something else that I want us to notice here. There's hope in this passage. There's hope found here. Look at what happens after it says that Cain's face fell. Verse 6. The Lord spoke to Cain. Now just stop for a second. God spoke to Cain. After the fall, God directly spoke to this man. That That's hope right there enough. We could also compare that to what God has given us today. Friends, God is speaking to you today through his word. He still does it the same way. Not audibly, but just as powerfully. He speaks to us still today. So he speaks to Cain directly. And this is what he says. He says, Cain, you can still be accepted. Here's how. If you do well, will you not be accepted? God says to Cain. This phrase, do well, is used 11 other times in Genesis, and it always means to do good or to please someone, to please them well. Do you see what this means? The Lord told Cain the same thing that John is telling us today. Practice righteousness. Do well. Do good, and you will be accepted, God said to Cain. Do well and won't, won't you then be accepted? Practice righteousness and thereby prove that God is your father. But that's not how Cain responded. He didn't respond in righteousness. He didn't heed the warning of the Lord about ruling over the sin that crouched in wait at his door. That's an incredible analogy that the Lord gave Cain there. 
we can use that even now. Sin is crouching at the door. And it doesn't take much of a crack for it to get its foot in. He didn't heed that warning. And instead of repenting and changing his ways, Cain doubled down on trusting his own way. And in anger, he murdered his brother. An irreversible thing. And now we see what's really in the heart of Cain. We see what's really going on there. Now think back again to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrifices alone never fully satisfied God. We know this over and over. God used different people in the Old Testament to explain this to his people, that the hearts, their hearts mattered when they came with a sacrifice. I think back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This involves Saul. Let me just read a couple of verses from that chapter. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of divination and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. But listen to this. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now this is Samuel speaking to Saul. Saul had just returned from battle where he was told to do something specific and he thought he knew better than God. And he came and he acted innocent when he was called on the carpet. But then he did something similar to Cain when Samuel came to him with this. He, he doubled down on going his own way, and then he blamed the people. Well, the people did this, Samuel. They're the ones who did it. Saul had disregarded the word of the Lord through Samuel to go his own way, to do what he thought was right. And when he was confronted, he blamed other people. But because Saul had rejected God's instructions, his words, says God has rejected him as king. Saul's actions here, and it happened more than just here, but Saul's actions revealed consistently what was actually in his heart. God spoke to Cain similarly, and Cain rejected his warning and also revealed what was already in his heart. But notice something else about Cain. Cain was really angry when his sacrifice was rejected. But think about what he was angry about. He wasn't angry about his own shortcomings, like, oh, I shouldn't have offered this sacrifice this way. He wasn't angry about that. He, he wasn't even angry against God. Who was he angry against? His brother. What did his brother do wrong? Nothing. His brother obeyed the word of God, and it, was, and it infuriated Cain. There's a lot we can take from this that we probably don't really need to go into this morning, but I just want to point this one thing out that's really convicting. Just point out how easy it is to blame the person, the person standing next to you when the problem actually lies in you. That's what Cain did. Abel wasn't the problem. It was what was inside of Cain. In our fallenness, we go to great lengths to not have to be responsible for our own actions. 
It didn't work out for Saul. It didn't work out for Cain. It's not going to work out for us either. To have that same attitude is not going to work out for us. Instead of going our own way, let's listen to the Lord today. He's saying to us, do well. Won't you be accepted? Let's work hard at pleasing the Lord instead of working hard to cover our sin. You've seen this happen. You know this if this is true of you. It's more energy and effort to maintain the lie than just to come clean and confess. But it's also not very easy. So let's work hard, not at covering our sin, but at pleasing the Lord. Let's work hard at practicing righteousness instead of insisting on our own way. Cain's deeds were evil and he killed Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous. So think back to 1 John chapter 3. John uses this story of Cain and Abel to illustrate and prepare us on how Christians are going to be treated in the world today. Look at verse 13, 1 John chapter 3. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, this is not some weird inferiority complex or some unrealistic martyr syndrome that John wants Christians to have. That's not what he's getting at. When he says, don't be surprised, he's not meaning that we should walk around expecting bad things or pessimistic about the world. I've, I've heard and I've seen too many people who claim Christ that do silly, divisive, and ungodly things and then kind of boast in the fallout that comes, insisting that, well, that's what happens to Christians in the world. We get persecuted. You can't, you can't be mean-spirited mean and blame a bad response on an unjust persecution. That's not how it works. That's doing, in reality, that's doing theological gymnastics to get out of owning up to our own sinfulness in that situation. It's not what God wants. In contrast, God is saying, Persecution, hate is going to come from the world just for practicing righteousness. Think about Cain and Abel. Now, we're not told, but I don't believe Abel rubbed it in his face. And he hated him anyway because his deeds were righteous. We don't get to stir up trouble in our churches and then believe that it's the world hating us. It's not how it works. That's disregarding the words of the Lord and opening that door wide to sin that's crouching just outside. The real test of having new life in Christ is loving the brethren. That's what John says. That's the real test for whether you know God and have been born of God or not. Now, last week, Jason mentioned having some conversations with coworkers and other people who claim to be Christians, but then when you start getting into that conversation more. Well, where do you attend church? I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. You know, that's what we hear all the time. Well, in reality, it's true. It is. Because we're sinners just like they are. But people say, well, I, I, I love God, but I, I can't love the church. You know what that says? You know what that reveals? We've, we've said this before, but it reveals something about what's already inside their heart. How should we respond to this? Because no doubt you've had conversations like this too. Well, maybe take them to 1 John three fourteen. 
in love, (laughs) that's the key here, ask them, well, do you love other Christians? How can you prove that to me if you're not involved in the body of Christ? How can you prove that you really love other Christians if you don't love the church? And in verse 15, John continues to keep it simple. He says, if you hate your brother, then you're a murderer. And murderers don't have eternal life in them. We know this from Matthew 7, Jesus teaching about what goes on in a person's heart. And he equates it with hating and he equates it with love or lust rather. Almost the opposite of love. But he says, if you lust after a woman, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, it's as if you've murdered him in your heart. And John keeps that theme going here. And he says, if you hate your brother, that's true of you. Murderer. Let me just say this in a different way. Because John says murderers don't have eternal life in them. Let me just say it a different, more simple way maybe. Just this. Christians cannot hate. We can't hate. We can't hate people. We should, let me clarify, we should hate sin. But we can't hate people made in the image of God. How many of you know another person who claims Christ that will not speak to a different person that claims Christ. You see what I'm saying? People, Two people who call themselves Christians but won't talk because they're mad, because they hate each other. I hope none of us are that person. But statistics would show that there's some of us here that just have unresolved hate in our hearts. And it's affecting our relationship with God it's affecting our relationship with others. And verse, the end of verse 14 is pretty clear here that if you don't let God free you from that in salvation, you just, you abide in death. The life is not in you. Now, I'm certainly not your judge. I certainly don't know your heart, but it's pretty clear from this text that if you have hate in your heart, you may not be saved. And your continued practice of hate proves that you're not. Now, again, this is hard to swallow, but it's not complicated. And I realize that so far this message has been a bit of a bummer. It's kind of a downer. This is hard to hear. Some things in Scripture are hard to hear. We just need to get used to that. We're not going to change that from the pulpit just because that's what Scripture says. It's been hard to hear. It's been convicting to hear. Light invading the darkness, brothers and sisters, is a painful thing. Because that darkness gets wrapped around sins that we hold so tight to. And when the light shines on it, it's as if it burns and it's painful. Truth penetrating our pride hurts. Let the Spirit do its work in you. We don't want to just jump to something positive. We want to let the Spirit work. But there certainly is some positive here that I want us to see. John is comparing and contrasting love in these verses. And so he uses the story of Cain and Abel to illustrate what love isn't. But then he goes in verse 16 to show us, because of Jesus, what love is and what love does. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So now we see 
Now we see what real love is and what real love does. Real love is seen in Christ laying down his life for us. And real love is shown in us laying down our lives for the brothers, for each other. Think about Jesus. He didn't just give up some free time to do what God called him to do. Just do it on the weekends. Do my own thing on the week. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't just give some of his money. He didn't just give away his rights as a citizen, any of that stuff. He went all the way, all the way to the cross, and he gave up his life. He willingly gave up the very thing, man, that we cling to and fight for all the time. We fight for our rights. We fight for freedom. We fight for a good life. And Jesus just came and gave that all up. His choice for you because of love. It's one thing to give up a few days of your time to serve somebody on a mission trip or something like that. It is something to sacrifice and give extra offering in the the basket every week. But it's a whole other thing to be willing to die. And a silly example I think of, I've heard of this, uh, when we're thinking about breakfast, you can, you can eat an egg and that chicken sacrificed a bit for it. But when you eat bacon at breakfast, the pig gave it all. Certainly I'm not equating Jesus Christ to a hog, but he was willing to give it all. Not just a part of it, And this is how we're told now that we're supposed to love each other. This also helps us understand the depth of love is revealed in the extent of the sacrifice. You see that? We know the depth of God's love for us because of how far that sacrifice went. Jesus paid it all. He gave it all. And this communicates clearly the depth of God's love for us. John says now, this is how we ought to love one another. Not like Cain treated his brother, but how Jesus treats his brothers and sisters. Giving everything. I I don't know that God intends for every one of us to give up our life physically as Jesus did. Certainly, he has called hundreds of thousands throughout history to give up their lives for the sake of Christ. Praise God for those people. I don't know that we will be called to do that. We may one day. How are we supposed to love our brothers and sisters this way? He explains it a little bit more in verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There's the heart of the matter. There is the test of real Christianity, of real Christian love. Do you love another person enough to open your heart to their need? When you have what you need and you see someone who doesn't, how do you respond? That says, that says it all. Do you ignore them? Do you pass that person by? Do you lecture them on how to achieve more in their life? Or do you just open your heart and open your stuff to them? In Acts, we see examples of this. Chapter 2, they're getting together as a church every day. They're reading scripture and praying. And it says that they, they do something crazy. 
they start selling their property. They start selling their personal possessions and then giving the proceeds to the people in the church that had a need. These early Christians relied on one another in a way that us in America and our independent ideology and our independent American ways, we don't account for. We don't understand that, do we? Now, to be clear, I'm I'm not suggesting that you go home and sell your home, sell your house and everything you have, unless God is telling you to do that. And I've heard stories of people that he has told to do that. But most of the time, I think caring for and loving the brethren, loving the church, other believers, people, looks a lot more typical and normal, in our definition at least, than that. Do you love another person enough to open your heart to them? Let me just move this from a philosophical level to a real practical level. Do you love another person enough to open your home to them? Home's where the heart is, right? Home is where we feel comfortable. Home is where we feel safe. Are we willing to open that space up to someone else? We know what real love looks like because we know what Jesus did. We practice real love then by doing what Jesus did. John states the negative side of this. Look at verse 17 at the end. He explains that your willingness or reluctantness to, to love sacrificially actually reveals whether God abides in you or not. Can you believe that? That is an audacious thing to say. That's hard for us to hear. But look at this. Kids, adults, John boils down your Christian witness and faith to how you serve others. Now, we see what's on the outside, but when you see someone serving sacrificially, it's a really good indication that they love Jesus. And when the flip side, when you see someone acting selfishly, it's a really good indication that they don't know Jesus. Because we practice what we really believe. Now, this kind of teaching would have been outrageous for John and his readers to hear. That, really? How I serve and love others reveals if God abides in me or not? That would have been huge to them. But you know what? It, it seems absurd to us today, probably. It's not absurd. It's not ridiculous. Jesus is our example. John lays out this as a test for real Christianity. And then James, in his book, he affirms this all the same. Let's, let's flip over to James chapter 2. Praise the Lord. There's consistency in his word. James chapter 2, look at verse 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Cannot faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You want to see something really cool about this? 
This morning, the Lord is giving us a clear reminder in, in James and in First John of the authority, the reliability, and the consistency of Scripture. Just maybe if you've got your, your finger in First John and James both, just look at verse 18 from James chapter 2 again. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now flip back over to First John verse 18 as well. Chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. James and John, in verses 18 of their respective chapters, are telling us the same thing. You prove your faith is genuine by what you do, by what you practice. Now, I'm not able to explain every single way that a Christian is supposed to open their heart or their home to someone in need. But let me give us a few examples, just again, for practical help. We open our heart to someone by offering our time to volunteer for an event or for a season as a Sunday school teacher at church. We serve the families here in doing that. We, we open our heart by sometimes opening our wallet to give it to an organization who cares for the needy or for, to a missionary who's serving the Lord in another place. It could be restructuring your family time to include intentionally serving people around you, a neighbor or someone in your community or a loved member of the church. It could be inviting a hurting family into your home for dinner, just to listen, just to give them a break from cooking for one night. It could be welcoming a struggling mother or father under your wing, praying with them, encouraging them could be giving up your Saturday mornings to meet with another Christian for discipleship. It could be a thousand other ways that we open our heart to people. If we think of the church as the body of Christ, and we should, and if we're told that each person has a different way of serving in the body and serving the body, and we do, then none of us has to do everything. None of us can do everything. Our hearts may well up with, uh, you know, service. And we say, well, I want to do it all. But you can't. You know that. So focus on what God is calling you to do now. How might he be calling you to open your home or your heart to someone? We're not all going to be able to do everything. But by the grace of God, we have to do something. We cannot sit and do nothing we know what happens when we sit and do nothing. The darkness begins to overcome. And so we have to be the light that goes out. And may it start in the church, but may it move beyond quickly. John, in 1 John chapter 3, tells us that individually, we display the love of God when we serve a brother or sister who is in need. But I also think back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 where it says that corporately as the church, we display not only the love of God, but the wisdom of God and how we serve people outside the church. Let me point in closing to another example of God's providence from his word this morning. It's another example of the authority and the consistency and the reliability of his word. I want to just compare John 3.16, which you all know, to 1 John 3.16. 
So if you're there in 1 John, just look at verse 16 again. We know the gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Look at verse 16 here. It describes the same love, the same love of God. John 3.16 describes the love of God, the deep love of the Father that He would send His one and only Son to die. And in 1 John, it says that we know what love is based on what love did. What He gave up. Now, I realize that the chapter and verse headings and those sorts of things came a long way after the inspired word was given. But I can't believe that that's just a coincidence. I think little things like this are, are neat surprises that help us understand, especially for us believers. If you're a believer, if you claim the name of Christ this morning, pay attention because this is what God is saying. You as a follower of his, as a disciple of Christ, cannot only show love in your words. You must practice it in your actions. James asks a tough question in the text that we looked at from James chapter 2. He says, if we don't practice this kind of love, is our faith really alive? Can we say that our faith is alive if we don't practice this kind of love? John asks a similar question. It's just as confrontational here. He says, if we don't love others this way, does the love of God really abide within us? Christ has not only set the example of sacrificial love, and we should look to the cross and see the love of the Father, but he also enables Christians to love others the same way by his death on the cross. Were it not for his death, were it not for the love of God first, none of us would love appropriately. None of us could love appropriately. Had he not died for sin, we would not know love. How could we love others if he had not loved us first? John goes on and later in 1 John that we'll get to to say that very thing. We love because he first loved us. Glory to God. He did show love that way. And everyone who calls on his name experiences that kind of love even today. And then that, that person is called to go and love others the same way. So, in reflection on this this morning. Let's ask a couple of questions. Do you know the love of Christ today? Have you experienced life-changing love that only comes from God through Jesus Christ? You can. Our hope and our prayer is, is that you will. And it doesn't take giving a certain amount. It doesn't take attending a certain amount. It doesn't take any of those things. It just takes looking to the sun and believing. Do you know the love of Christ today? And then secondly, if you say yes to that first question, do you love others the same way? It won't always be perfect. We'll stumble and we'll fall. But in the body, we're there to pick one another up and set each other back right. Do we love one another the same way? God's people will. John is convinced of that. We need to be convinced of that. God's people will love one another this way. So 
Before we sing our last song, this is a word of encouragement, very simple as we've focused on this morning. The simple aspect of what we're talking about is this. God's people will go and love others this way, so let's go do it. Let's go do it. Thanksgiving time, Christmas time, you have untapped potential probably in your relationships and in your time to go and to love people this way. But you don't have to wait till Thanksgiving. You can go do that today on your way home. Text a church member you haven't seen in a while. Call a friend that you know is struggling. Reach out and begin to make practical, easy steps that prove the love of God abides in you. Let's pray. Lord, this is so hard. On one hand, it's so hard because we, we all have families and we have time restraints and we have jobs, most of us, or we're going to school. And, and if, we, if we talk to somebody, most of the time we say, I'm just so busy. I don't even have hardly time to, to spend with the, with the Lord in prayer and in his word. How do I have time to go and to serve others, and to be the light of Christ? Lord, that's, that's typical of us. But John's real clear, and I don't think it matters that we're in America in 2020 and not in his day and age. I don't think it matters at all. But he's very clear. If we say we love God and his truth and love abides in us, then we will go and love other people the same way. We won't be angry at their righteousness. Lord, we'll pursue you even more because of it. Lord, we expect to not be taken seriously. We expect to be persecuted, but not because of our own pessimism or our own irritability. Lord, uh, we, if we're going to be persecuted, we want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. So give that as a desire of our heart, Lord, to pursue holiness at every expense because it's worth it, because you're coming again. Lord, help us to take practical steps, even today, to serve and open our hearts to those in need. Help us not turn away when we see that presented to us. Help us to see it as an opportunity given by you to prove who our Father is. May we respond as Christ did. In his name we pray. Amen.